episode 60, Monopolize. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a July 30th, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. The goal of Monopoly is to become a real estate tycoon and acquire outrageous amounts of fake money. But that wasn't at all what the game's original inventor intended. Developed by a woman in 1904, the game was meant to teach the dangers of economic greed. Ironically, 20 years later, another gamer stole the concept and made a pretty penny. Join curator Laurel Fritch and me as we examine a Monopoly board used in Parsons, Kansas. Was the game meant to be a socialist metaphor or a brilliant capitalist marketing campaign? And what's the deal with those little metal tokens? What does a shoe, an iron, and a Scotty dog have to do with real estate? Later, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to one of the greatest engineering marvels of the 20th century, the St. Louis Arch. Completed in 1968, this 630-foot-tall stainless steel structure is the tallest monument in the U.S. Was William Allen White the first person to challenge the weight limit of the monument's infamous tram elevator? You'll find out when we play another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, monopolize. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a Monopoly board game from the 1940s. Um, this game belonged to a lady named Lois Hunter of Parsons, Kansas, and Parsons is located kind of in the extreme southwest Kansas. Um, just by looking at the wear on the game, it appears that it was a, a Hunter family favorite. Yeah, it sure does. The game consists of, and can, correct me if I'm wrong, it's basically like the board, the standard Monopoly board, mm-hmm. um, several hotel fragments, motel or hotel pieces, motel pieces, your tokens, and the property cards. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the fake money. Yes, of course. Yeah. This game wasn't always called Monopoly, though, was it? No. It was originally named The Landlord's Game, and it was developed by a woman named Elizabeth Maggie in 1904. Who was Maggie, and why was she developing a game about wealth acquisition? Well, Maggie is a really interesting person. Um, She was originally from Maryland, and she was a single woman. She was a suffragette. She was even an actress for a while. And um, she has a very interesting background. She was a Quaker, and Quakers believe that people can have a relationship with God without a mediator such as like a priest or a reverend. They also believe in things like pacifism, social equality, integrity, and simplicity. And those beliefs from her religious background, I think, really helped in forming her economic philosophy. And Maggie believed in a populist economic philosophy. She believed in a philosophy called Georgism, which is named after its creator, Henry George. And this economist believed that many of society's social and financial problems were caused by people who had complete control over land or an industry, which we call monopolists. 
George's solution was something that he created called the single tax, and that meant that the only tax that people would pay would be on the value of land, regardless of what they built on it. So George believed that land should belong to everybody, and all income from the land should go back into the community. Maggie decided to design a game called the Landlord's Game, and that was meant to demonstrate the virtues of the single tax and the evils of Monopoly. Um, so basically, the rules for her 1906 version of the game said that based on the present prevailing business methods, the players can prove for themselves, and they can also prove what must be the logical outcome of such a system, i.e., that the land monopolist has absolute control over the situation. It's kind of a confusing wording, but basically what it comes down to is that she created this game to try to prove that being a landowner was evil and it would result in poverty. Then she goes on to state in her rules that the remedy for this situation is the single tax. And so Maggie wrote a series of game rules that would prove how, quote, the application of the single tax would benefit everybody by equalizing opportunities and raising wages. So the theory of the game is to um, is, is basically that you have two outcomes, right? You know, of her game is that either you're going to end up being um, a, wealth, a really wealthy landlord or you're going to be flat broke. And with four people playing, there's one person that gets to be the wealthy landlord while three go flat broke. Exactly. But by applying then this second rule having to do with the single tax, it would sort of reverse things so that it would equalize the board again, which is really interesting. Where, like, I'm just, I'm a little bit baffled, like, okay, so she's an actress, um, and she's a, an advocate of the of this economic policy. Why is she inventing board games? Like, where would they even play these? Would they play these at get-togethers or something? Yeah. Um, basically, it, I'll get into this a little bit later, but Mostly, um, it was shared among her and her friends. Um, she had, of course, a lot of friends who were Quakers, but also she was fairly significant in university circles. So it was mostly university intellectuals, um, people who might have been economics um, majors or something like that, who would play this game. So it was really sort of intended for that level um, of socioeconomic class as opposed to your local dirt farmer in Kansas or mm -hmm. something like that. You mentioned that it kind of contains a populist message, or at mm -hmm. least Maggie's version did. Um, do you think Maggie's um, original landlord game, the message that it projected, do you think it would have been re well received in Kansas? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think it has that possibility, mostly because the populist movement was really big and very important in Kansas. And Georgism is a part of the populist movement. And in fact, um, there are various branches of Georgism, um, various clubs and things like that, one of them being called the Single Tax Club. And they had branches all over Kansas in Abilene, Grove Hill, and Kansas City, for example. So uh, you're telling me there was things called single tax clubs? Right. Wow. I bet that was, that was an exciting club to be a part of, a single tax club. <laughs> Are there any features of the modern Monopoly game that hint to its populist past? Not many, but there are a couple. Um, for example, the community chest 
is mostly beneficial. When you pick up a card, it'll say things like um, you've won $10 or something like that. Um, so that idea that the community um, will help you out and things like that is still present. Yeah, that's very populist. Mm -hmm. And also railroads are a very prominent feature in the game. There are four railroads still in the game of Monopoly. And Maggie really wrote this and designed this game to reflect the times. And at that time, railroads were just about one of the biggest monopolies in the country. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that railroads are still around sort of hints to that. Also, there are class differences within the properties, which are still evident. So um, I'm trying to think. There's some aquamarine ones. I think it's like Baltic Avenue, Mediterranean Avenue, uh -huh. places like that. That's the low end. Exactly. That's the low end. And then you get to someplace like Boardwalk. That's and the high end. Exactly. It's very, very expensive. Sometime in the 1930s, a man named Charles Darrow took Maggie's landlord game and uh, corrupted it a bit, mm -hmm. resulting in the Monopoly game that we see today. Who was Darrow, and what did he have against the landlord game? Um, and did he ever make money that wasn't miniature, yellow, or fake? <laughs> That's a good question, and um, it really cuts to the heart of the evolution of Monopoly, and that is a really fascinating story. Um, it basically follows the traditional pattern of any folk game. Um, basically, Lizzie Maggie, she had some handmade sets and sold some of them in some shops in Pennsylvania and Maryland. And then for the next 30 years, the game was played by Quaker and university intellectuals. And that was about it. And when Maggie's handmade sets ran out, because it was popular among these circles, people would acquire their own game by copying it from one another. So a lot like the game of telephone, which we all played when we were little kids, hmm. the game Never changed. Never heard of the game of telephone. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, um, in any case, what happens with telephone um, and what happened with Maggie's game is that people would change it as they copied it. So people would often rename the streets after those in their own local community, or they would alter the rules slightly as they played it. Um, and Priscilla Robertson was one of those people who played this game when it was still being developed as a folk tradition, and she said that in those days, those who wanted copies of the board for Monopoly would take a piece of linen cloth and copied it in crayon. It was considered a point of honor not to sell it to a commercial manufacturer since it had been worked out by a group of single taxers who were anxious to defeat the capitalist system. Which is really interesting. That's so funny that Monopoly was viewed as like a way to defeat the capitalist system. Exactly. <laughs> but it all changed, of course. Mm -hmm. um, in 1933, which was the height of the Great Depression, Charles Darrow, who was from Germantown, Pennsylvania, had some friends who owned a homemade copy of this game. And that copy had streets named after those in Atlantic City, and it included chants and community chess cards and houses and hotels. And Daryl immediately saw the potential, the commercial potential. So he decided to make his own game, and he unsuccessfully approached Parker Brothers Company about manufacturing it. But Daryl wasn't deterred. 
Um, he made 5,000 sets of his own with his own money, and the rapid sales of the game convinced Parker Brothers that they should manufacture it, which they did. Well, at some point, Parker Brothers realized that Darrow was not the original inventor of the game, but because of the volatile economic times and the fact that the game of Monopoly was really pulling Parker Brothers out of bankruptcy, Parker Brothers and Darrow concealed the true origins of Monopoly, and Darrow became a multimillionaire. But he didn't become quite as rich as Parker Brothers. Um, Who has a virtual Monopoly on board games. Exactly. Um, And Monopoly is the best-selling board game in the entire world. What is the major difference between uh, the Monopoly of today and the Landlord's game uh, of Maggie's? There's no chance or community chess cards on the Landlord's game. And the Landlord's game has spaces that are labeled things like absolute necessities, no trespassing, luxuries, and there are four spaces that are labeled coal mines, oil fields, farmlands, and timberland. And none of those are on our current Monopoly board. And also, the property names, of course, are different. But most importantly, the landlord's game includes rules concerning the single tax, which we don't have in our current Monopoly board. I'm just curious. The property names that are on the modern version of Monopoly, where do those come from? They come from the Atlantic City um, version of the game. Those are all locations within Atlantic City. Really? Yeah. As we see, the game has evolved over the years to include um, its physical appearance. Lois Hunter's game has some particular features that are unique to its time period. Why are the tokens in Hunter's game made of wood instead of the standard pewter? Well, during World War II, materials such as metals were being monopolized by the government nice. for military nice use. Thank you. As a result of the government needing metals for the war, Monopoly games were made with wooden game pieces instead of metal ones. Conserving even that small amount of metal helped the war effort a lot, especially when you consider that many people during World War II turned to board games for amusement, and Monopoly was one of the most popular games that they turned to. If Monopoly was intended to convey a greater moral lesson against unbridled capitalism, I wonder if other popular games contain similar messages. Mm -hmm. Laurel, I'll give you the name of the game, and you give me the lesson it's intended to teach. For example, the game Battleship. I believe the lesson is, naval strategy is based on nothing more than random selection of ocean area. <laughs> so that's the, that's the example. Okay, so I'll give you the game, and you give me the lesson. Okay. Um, Candyland. Candyland. Games about food make you hungry. (laughs) How about that? All right. That's a good lesson. Um, The second game is Clue, and I have a suggestion. Okay. I believe that Clue has a greater moral lesson. Um, It teaches us to be cautious of people that have a color reference in their name. Mm. Yeah. I believe Colonel Mustard, um, Mrs. Plum, Mm -hmm. dangerous people. That's right. That's very good. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say, it's elementary, my dear Watson. Uh, logical thought and deductive reasoning will always be victorious. Mm. I think that's the moral message. All right. And, um, but I think there might be another moral message, too, just like you came up with another one. I'd say, um, when you're in a Tudor mansion in the south of England, and here I'll have to quote Harry Potter, um, Mad-Eye Moody, who says, constant vigilance. I'd 
I'd have to say that's another good message. Is constant vigilance? Constant vigilance, yes. All right. The final game is Sorry, which um, has a feature to it, if I remember right, where another player can bump or skip you. Mm-hmm. I believe the greater moral lesson is that siblings like mine are more than happy to screw their younger brother. Ah, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, yeah, along with that, I'd have to say it has to do with karma. You know, what goes around comes around. All right. Well, Laurel, thanks for uh, thanks for telling us about uh, Mrs. Hunter's game of Monopoly, and uh, thanks for uh, deducing the moral uh, lessons of various board games. Well, it's been my pleasure. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. And joining me today is the Historical Society's two public information officers, Bobby Athan and Teresa Jenkins. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. Today, we are connecting William Alawite to the Gateway of the West, the St. Louis Arch. And uh, just to give you a little background, because I'm sure you ladies are, are highly curious, right, what, sure, the, yes. what the background of the arch is. Well, the arch is 630 feet tall and 630 feet wide. The structure is what's known as an inverted steel cantonary arch, uh, and it's meant to symbolize a giant gate, which I think it, it accomplishes fairly effectively. Um, the gate is because St. Louis is known as the gateway to the West. Um, a lot of the mass migra- migration that happened along the Oregon and Santa Fe trails began in St. Louis, which was the juncture of the Missouri and the Mississippi River. Um, at 630 feet tall, it is the tallest monument in the U.S., which I believe makes it taller than Mount Rushmore at 630 feet. Um, it is part of the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial Complex. So there's a big park in St. Louis, and this is part of it. The arch was actually built to commemorate the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. The, the arch was designed in 19, uh, 1947 by Finnish architect Euro Saarinen. And it was constructed in 1968. I'm not sure what the delay was between 1947 and 1968. Maybe I guess they had to find the funding or something. An anniversary. That's uh, true. They had to ride for the right moment. Because it wasn't that part of a. It was part of a World's Fair, wasn't it? It was like the main feature of a World's Fair. Yes. Um, so it was kind of the Eiffel Tower. St. Louis's <laughs> version of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> During construction, the engineering tolerance. I think this is really interesting. The engineering tolerance of the structure was so slim. It was one sixty-fourth of an inch which became a problem uh, when they were finishing up construction. Obviously, the first two legs were constructed first. It was supposed to be linked together at the center. Um, But on the day when they went to link it together at the top, the south leg, which stood in the sun a little bit longer, the heat had actually caused the metal to flex. So it fell out of tolerance, so they couldn't get it to line up. So to fix that problem, the local St. Louis Fire Department actually sprayed water on the bottom of the (laughs) leg, which allowed it to go back into tolerance. Good engineering. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, so basically that's a little background on the on the arch. So, Merle, have you found a solution to this problem? I have. It was kind of funny. I just randomly picked the arch, and uh, it's you're, I was able to find a solution between uh, the arch and William Allen White. All right. As I said, the arch was designed by Euro Sarninen. Sarninen. <laughs> He was one of the elite of the mid-century architects and designers. He hung out with people like uh, Van der Rohe, who was kind of the leader of the American Bauhaus style. And you'll see a lot of his work in downtown Chicago. It's that very modern, um, 
very non-decorative, utilitarian-type design. And he was also childhood friends with another significant designer of that time period, Charles Eames, who was a St. Louis native. Charles Eames uh, was a designer. He was also really well-known for his modern style of furniture in the 1950s and 60s, and he's best known for designing the Eames lounge chair. Is it Ames or Eames? I've been thinking Eames. I think I always thought it was Ames, but um, on Antiques Roadshow they say Eames. That so must be right. Though. It must be right. Um, so this chair was marketed in 1956 by the Herman Miller Furniture Company. Well, this style of chair struck the fancy of one William Lindsay White. Um, because in the 1950s, White ordered a pair of these lounge chairs from the Herman Miller Furniture Companies. Ah. And these chairs were actually in the house, in the William Allen White historic home in Emporia, Kansas. They were in the house until 2001. Um, and then the family retained these chairs. Um, and it was actually interesting. I got to sit in these chairs, these pair Ooh. of... And they're unbelievably comfortable. <laughs> William Lindsay and Catherine liked modern... Uh, furniture, didn't they? I think they did, yeah. They liked a lot of modern stuff, a lot of modern artists and modern furniture. And as we know, William Lindsay White is the son of William Allen White. Well, that's really good, Merle. I'm impressed. Um, but, Teresa, <laughs> I think you found a solution as well, didn't you? I did. Good job, Merle. Thanks. Well, our uh, connection that I found was that, well, we know that the Gateway Arch is part of the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial. And St. Louis attorney and civic booster Luther Eli Smith was considered the father of the memorial. And he endured a lot of criticism from people who had political interests in the memorial or who were concerned about government spending during the recovery from the Depression. But Smith persevered and convinced President Franklin D. Roosevelt to establish the memorial in 1935. Smith and members of the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial Association worked alongside Congress's United States Territorial Expansion Memorial Commission. Do we have enough bureaucratic <laughs> That's a lot of here? commissions. And William Allen White happened to be a commissioner on William that Allen commission. White, he was a fan of a good God commission, Lord. wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> he saw a lot of commissions. He was the go-to man. Uh, White even corresponded with Luther Eli Smith, assuring him when the editor of a New York magazine wrote a disparaging article about the memorial that he would, quote, uh, that, that, quote, the episode will soon be forgotten, end quote. So you have William Allen White actually writing in reference, in direct reference to the to the to the memorial. In he the arch. was there, even though he never got to see it built, which is kind of sad. Uh, he was he was part of the he was present at the creation, as they say. So That's amazing. That, that, that guy fun. was everywhere. He was <laughs> very good. Um, so. Can I just ask real quick, have either of you guys been to the St. Louis Arch? I've yes. never been to it. And I've been to the top twice. I've have you? I've been to the top. I've been by it. Is it pretty impressive? It is. We went on a still day the first time, so I had no reservations going again. And the second time it was windy, and it actually sways. Uh, they gave us the 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 amount of inches it's, it can sway either way. It seems like it was 18 inches, uh, which seems like a lot <laughs> to be up 630 feet and swaying from to side to side. Um, but it, it was kind of scary. We didn't stay too long the second trip. Bobby, would you like to present the challenge for the next episode? Sure, Merle. Um, I understand that it's going to be connecting William Allen White to the Dark Knight, a.k.a. Batman, um, which, incidentally, I think was written by Bill Kane. Um, I look forward to this one. Um, this uh, DC superhero first appeared in the um, Detective Comics number 27 in 1939. Um, 
he was created to be the antithesis of Superman. Uh, the only powers of this ordinary man were um, intellect, detective skills, technology, and a whole lot of wealth. He's got all <laughs> kinds of cool toys, too. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with Kane, the, the writer? Just a little bit. What, what else did he? What? My daughter's a big Robin Robin fan, so there's <laughs> just all kinds of Robin materials. So, all right, okay. So if you think you can connect Gotham's Cape Crusader to the Sage of Emporia, <laughs> just send your chain of connection to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. Thanks, ladies. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That concludes episode sixty. Monopolize. If you would like to see images of this World War II-era Monopoly board, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Join us in two weeks when we examine a wood block connected to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. This unassuming fragment was once part of the Surratt gallows, which were used in 1865 to execute Mary Surratt and four other individuals that conspired with John Wilkes Booth to assassinate the president and members of his cabinet. The plot fell apart, but the gallows didn't. Finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, let us know. Feel free to leave a comment on our iTunes page, Cool Things in the Collection, the Kansas Museum of History. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.